grave just as he said he would. And he lives forevermore and and stands as mediator for us in heaven. What a blessing. I want to thank all of those who had part in the music today, all the instrumentals, the the singing, and some of some of that was the first time doing that uh, in front of people. So uh, we're glad uh, for all of you who participated. Uh, Johan, uh, his first time playing his violin, and uh, my, what a blessing! What a blessing to have such talented people who use their talents for the glory. Of Christ. Well, we're glad that you're here today. This is, uh, of course, Easter Sunday, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to go to a passage that you might not expect. Uh, generally, most think I'll, I would preach from Matthew or or Luke, but I'm going to First Peter. So, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, First Peter, chapter one. Follow with me, if you will, beginning in verse 1 through verse 3. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. Grace, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you that uh, you have brought us here to this place. Many family and friends and visitors today. We pray that you would uh, speak to each heart this morning. We are here for one purpose. And that is to worship and to glorify and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would work through your Spirit in the hearts of people this morning as we unfold this passage from your Holy Word. We pray that you would do this through the power of your Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Peter writes to these people who have been dispersed across this area of uh, uh, what is known now as Turkey. And he writes to those, he says in, in verse, uh, in verse one, to those who are called the elect or the chosen ones that Peter writes to here. They are a people that are scattered. They are people that are conflicted. They are, they are battled with what is meant to be God's chosen people in the midst of an evil world. 
I think those of us who know Christ, who love Him and follow Him, can associate those thoughts with what we see today in the world. As Christians, we're living in an evil time when people are forsaking the living God and going after idols. C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity, If I find myself... If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was meant for another world. Indeed, those who are called by God, those who are chosen by Him, are indeed meant for another world. These people that Repeater writes to struggle with their culture, as we do. They... They are combated with questions of their age, just like we are. They found themselves subject to and at odds with the ungodly rule of the Roman Empire. As we find ourselves at at odds with our government. At this point, we might expect Peter, in his letter, to immediately address with coolness and calmness the difficulties that these displaced Christians were living in. Instead, what Peter does is he he brings to us exactly what he should do. He, He brings a sweeping proclamation of the glory of God for his wondrous work of salvation and inheritance that he has given to those whom are his. This passage is almost like a hymn of praise designed to worship, bring worship and praise to God for what he's done. Now the thrust of the passage is the very thing that Jesus came for, and that was to save people from their sins. It's all about salvation. From the very outset, he emphasizes this in many forms. It is the, is the, it's as though Peter explodes with praise and with exultation because of the grandiose nature of the salvation that God has wrought for sinners. Not only is there praise and worship, but there's also a deep well of doctrinal truth here. Just in these few verses, we find truths like the doctrine of God, the doctrine of mercy, divine mercy, the doctrine of regeneration, and the doctrine of the resurrection. The theme of this verse, verse 3, is the security of the believer in suffering. We're going to deal this morning with just the verse. I want to take the verse apart. There are five sections in it that we want to look at this morning. And we see in this verse the absolute necessity of regeneration. It It is in regeneration that we have the secure source for our hope of salvation. Now, regeneration, as we will see in the coming parts of the verse, simply deals with the the new birth, uh, the person who has been born of God in Christ Jesus. And so, if you follow, you'll see that there are these sections that the triune God, by the way, you'll see from verse Verse 2, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are involved in this great salvation that 
we enjoy. But I want to center on just two words in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Something the world is almost devoid of, it seems, is hope. People go to people get up and they go about their business and they if you ask people what what are you hoping for? Many times they don't even know what to tell you. The world is so devoid of hope. But we see five areas in this verse that hope resides in Christ. Notice the first one. Our hope is in the person of God. The person of God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter begins with God in this whole uh, letter that he wrote, this first Peter. He begins with God. And if you go to chapter 5 uh, and look at verses 10 and 11, you find that he ends with God. Because God is the central theme of what salvation is. He is the God of eternity, the only true and living God. There is no doubt that Peter is musing over the vastness and the character of God's person and attributes. He can't, he can't quite get it all put together in sentences, much like Paul tried to put together the salvation that is in Christ in Ephesians chapter 1. He couldn't do it in just a, cent- a simple sentence. It had to be long and drawn out with, with one praise after another heaped upon. It would serve us to understand that God is a God of unity. And that means that He is complete in all of His character and attributes. 1 John 1.5 says God is light. Later in 1 John 4.8, He says God is love. That does not mean that part of God is light and part of God is love. But rather, that He is fully light and fully love. In other words, his attributes are fully in themselves a description of himself. So to say it another way, we could say that God is a collection of attributes all added together, but that make up the whole of his being. They are woven together as a beautiful tapestry for us to view. We begin to contemplate the infinite character of God And the many attributes of his person, it sends the mind and the heart and the creatures of the earth into overload. We cannot take it in. The infinite God tried to be understood by a a finite mind. And yet, we see that God is the one who created all things. And he is to be worshipped as creator. This is exactly what Peter does. Now, if you'll notice, he uses the word blessed be, the God and Father. Blessed be. That, those words is really one word in, in the original language. And it means to speak of that which is praiseworthy or worthy to be blessed. It's a verbal praise consisting in worship. Every time this word is used in the New Testament... 
It has reference only to God and His being, being extolled and praised. This tells us that God, that God's divine revelation to man, that He is the only one who receives this blessing and praise, and He's the only one that is praiseworthy to receive worship that is directed to Him. And so this is not only because of who He is, but it is because of the great work that he has done in bringing salvation to sinners who are lost. Paul reiterates on this in chapter 8 of Romans. And he says, we know that those who love God, for we, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. James says basically the same thing in chapter 1 of his epistle. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In these passages, Peter's, like Peter's, Paul and James are saying the same thing in just different ways. Paul says that God is working all things for our good by conforming us to Jesus Christ. And James says that our tribulations and troubles should be met with rejoicing because God is maturing us and completing us through them. Peter is saying that when we're displaced, when we're missing home, we're undergoing troubles as one who is not like the citizens of this world, then we are to look toward heaven And lift up our voice and worship God who has given us such marvelous and miraculous salvation. For nothing can separate us from what Christ has given us. In other words, Peter loves and adores God and he wants all other believers to do the same. You may be here this morning and you're not a believer. You've never been saved. You've never repented of your sins. You don't really love God. We pray this morning that God's word will open your heart to receive that, that love from him. The stress behind the words, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, means to speak well of God and recognize Christ in his essence and glory. The connection of the divine nature is unmistakable. It had to be in order for Jesus to be the Redeemer. He had to be the Divine One. For no mortal man could do what Jesus did. In fact, using the name Lord Jesus Christ speaks all speaks of all that Jesus is. As God, he is the Lord, which identifies him as the sovereign ruler of the universe. He is Jesus, the incarnate son of the living God. And he is the Christ, the anointed Messiah King. 
Peter's expectation is that the readers will recognize that God is the source of their hope and give him praise and worship because of the excellence of the salvation that he has given them. So our hope is in God. First, second, our hope is in the mercy of God. I, for one, am very thankful for God's mercy. The crushing weight of God's wrath against sin is so horrible that without mercy, every one of us in this room today and all other mankind would be doomed. It's God's mercy that gives us hope. Romans chapter 1, Paul writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forevermore. Sin brought about God's fury. It brought about God's wrath against fallen men. God's wrath is revealed in that He kept His promise of death. He told the man, Don't eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. For the day you do, you will die. Surely die. We all know what happened. Adam ate of that tree. And he died spiritually. He died instantly, spiritually, and had no more communion with God. Ran and hid himself. He was afraid for the first time. God's mercy is seen after that in that he went hunting for Adam and Eve. They didn't try to find him. He found them. And he gave them skins to cover their nakedness. And he redeemed them in lieu of a Savior one day that would come. It had to be a blood sacrifice. And God made that first blood sacrifice in the garden. But God's mercy is seen all the way through from the very beginning like that. We see Cain killed Abel. And God provided a substitute named Seth. When the world was enveloped in wickedness and all the thoughts and intents of man's heart was only evil continually, God extended grace and mercy to a single man, Noah, and his family from the flood that killed everyone else. What motivated God to save people? What motivated Him to save anyone? For He did not have to. We deserved Every human being deserved the punishment of God's wrath. It was only His abounding mercy. Paul speaks of it in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and He made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. It's mercy. And grace. It's nothing you could do. It's nothing I could do. In fact, he writes about God's mercy being so rich. Because it is God's character to be merciful. He is just as merciful as he is just. 
God's proclamation to Moses in the, in the Exodus account in, in Exodus 34 was this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The word love in that verse is the same word for mercy in the Greek Old Testament. Mercy and grace, they almost always go together. But there is a subtle difference. Someone has said that mercy is God withholding from you what you deserve. We deserved punishment. We deserved death. We deserved hell. And God withholds that from us. That's His mercy. While grace is God giving to you freely that which you do not deserve. We don't deserve the salvation that He gave us in Christ. He gave it to us because He chose to give it to us. It was grace. Another way to understand that difference is is that mercy focuses on man's pitiful and miserable condition in sin. While grace focuses on the guilt that is the result of that condition. What was the condition? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. And I'll show you the condition. Now, I just read verses 4 and 5, which speaks of God's mercy and grace, back up to verse 1. This is the condition. And you, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, just like everyone else. Is that your life? Are you just going through life just carrying out the desires of your flesh, of your, of your mind, just involved in whatever brings you a, a, a glimmer of pleasure or what you're really doing is you're searching for peace and you'll never find peace in those things. They're temporary. They're a flash in the pan. They don't last. The only thing that lasts is God's mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. MacArthur writes, divine mercy takes the sinner from misery to glory, which is a change of condition. And divine grace takes him from guilt to acquittal, which is a change of position. We must never forget that all believers, including us, We're once in bondage and slavery to sin and Satan. And if you're here today without Christ, you're in bondage to sin and Satan as well. Jesus told the Pharisees, it's the will of your Father that you do. He was a liar from the beginning. You see, it's all you can do. 
That's all you can do without Christ. You, nothing, you can only, you can only pursue yourself and, and your sin without Christ. And that leads to destruction. So, why is it that all people fail to see and understand their horrible condition before God? Why is that? Paul gives us the answer in 2 Corinthians 4. This is what he says. The God of this world, that's Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God. Who is the image of Christ? Who is the image of God? Satan, Satan keeps it from them. He snatches it away before they can, before they can even think about it clearly. Until one day the gospel gets into their heart and opens their heart and they see it and they see Christ as the answer. I remember very clearly what that was like. I was in a stadium of about 40 or 50,000 people. And the preacher preached, and all of a sudden, the lights came on. And I could see myself for the first time as a sinner lost before God on my way to hell. And Christ was the answer. He was the answer. I trusted Him. He saved me. Not one, there's not one person here, nor has there ever been one person anywhere born of Adam's race that has ever had any merit or worthiness that would cause God to extend His mercy to them. There's not one thing in me, not one thing in you that God would look down and say, I like that. All He saw was sin and rebellion. When God extends mercy, He does it because He wills to do it, not because He is compelled to do it. Paul writes in Romans 9, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or Exertion, that is human works. It doesn't depend on your will. It doesn't depend on your works. But on God who has mercy. That's why we see in Luke 18 the, the publican bowing down and with his head to the ground and beating on his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Some of you need to pray that prayer this morning. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You've never been saved. You don't know what it is to have your sins forgiven. You're just living in them. And they'll take you to hell. Notice the third part of hope we have this morning. We have hope in God's work of regeneration. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. To a living hope. Hope in Scripture is not the same as hope that we think of in our normal day-to-day conversation. We would say, I sure hope the sun's going to come out today and melt some of this snow off. I sure hope so-and-so is going to be better 
you know, from this sickness. That's not the kind of hope that the Bible speaks of. See, that's an uncertain thing. We don't know if the sun's going to come out. We don't know if someone's going to get well. We say all kinds of things with regard to hope that we do not know are going to actually come to pass. But hope in the Scriptures, hope, Bible hope, is a certain expectation. You don't have to wonder if it's going to happen. It will absolutely happen. It is something so sure that it cannot not happen. If I can use that kind of language. It absolutely will. All of us were at one time void of this kind of hope. I remember the conflict. I had At one time I had no hope. Just like maybe some of you this morning have no hope. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 2 as well. Listen to what he says. Remember that you at one time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's, that is the life story of every person that does not know Christ in the forgiveness of sin. You are without hope in this world. And you'll have no hope in the next. What is the possibility that anyone could secure a certain hope and peace for their life on their own? What is the possibility of that? Zero. Nil. Can't be done. You say, oh, well, if I just had, if I just had millions of dollars, I could sit back and ease you still wouldn't have hope. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah puts it like this. Can an Ethiopian change his color? Change the color of his skin? Or can a leopard remove his spots? There is little hope for you doing good who are accustomed to doing evil. You say, well, wait a minute, I've, I've done good things. I'm not a Christian, but I've done good things. You've only done good things with regard to what another human being estimates them as good. They are not good before God. All of your goodness before God is like a filthy pile of oozing, sore rags. That's all. We need God's work of regeneration. In fact, Jesus said it to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again to see it. That term born again is one of the favorite terms of the Apostle John. He uses it over and over and over again in his, uh, in his gospel Five different times. In connection with the new birth, it means to be literally born from above. It has nothing to do with earthly birth. It's being born from heaven, born from God. And that's why he says that. In John chapter 1, he writes, But to all who did believe in him, that's Christ, 
who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the flesh, but they were born of God. God is the one who has to do this birthing. Now Peter says the same thing here. He, God, has caused us to be born again. Now that's a, there's an incredible depth of words to be studied there, which we won't be able to but scratch the surface this morning. But it has the idea of something being born again. See, we were all born once. But those whom God saves are born again. They're, they're born from within. Their dead spirit, their dead soul is brought to life. We call it regeneration in theological terms. Peter writes in chapter 1 verse 23. Since you have been born again... Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That's how you're born again. You, you hear the word of God to you and you see yourself as a sinner and God opens your eyes to see yourself before him and gives you life in Christ and you trust in Christ and you fall in love with Christ. He becomes your treasure. Is he your treasure this morning? Or are all your treasures in little things that you've gathered to yourself that you, that you play with and, and do with? James uses similar terminology. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The same idea occurs in Matthew chapter 1. He did not know, Joseph did not know Mary, his wife, until she had brought forth or given birth to her firstborn son. So the new birth, the spiritual birth, is, is just that. It's regeneration. Uh, it, it is a work of God. How many of you had anything to do with your own birth here this morning? Uh, see, there are no hands because nobody had anything to do with your own birth. And you don't have anything to do with the new birth either. Except to follow after you have it. You follow Christ. You live for Him. You love Him more than you love the things of this life and this world. The impact of the second birth has either eternal, devastating, and destructive consequences... Or it has eternal, beneficial, life-giving consequences. And that depends upon whether or not you acknowledge yourself as a sinner and trust Christ. If you don't, the, the, the consequences are devastating. They're eternal. They're destructive. There's nothing to look forward to but punishment and, and torment. But for those who do trust Christ, they have eternal benefits. They have eternal life-giving consequences and benefits. Someone has said those who are born once 
will die twice. Those who are born twice will die once. John gives us this, the picture of this in Revelation. Turn with me and follow with me, Revelation. We're going to look at several passages here that deal with this whole idea of, of the new birth versus being born once or being born twice. Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Those who conquer are those who trust Christ to forgive their sins. They become part of God's family. But what is this second death? It is appointed unto men once to die, Hebrews says, once And after that, judgment. But when a person stands before God in judgment, not having anyone to come to their defense, they are judged by God and sent into the second death, which is the lake of fire, which is actually the literal hell. Turn over to chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 6. He writes, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Now that's that's equal to being born again or having the second birth. Over such, the second death has no power. That tells me that when I stand before God, I will not have to fear being cast into the lake of fire because I have had a second birth. I've been born again. God has saved me from my sins through Christ, and I do not have to fear His judgment. Look look at verse 14 of that same chapter. John now tells us what the second death actually is. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So those who have part in the second death end up in this lake That burns with fire. Look at Revelation 21 verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. For those of you who are here this morning and you don't know Christ in the forgiveness of sin, that's where you stand right now. This is why Peter has written this. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. You see, those who who are not born again have no living hope. Our hope is a sure and certain expectation that we will live and continue to live because we've been born from above. Even if we die physically, we will live spiritually in Christ. And that is a great hope. So where does that hope come from? 
What is the objective basis of this hope? What is its certainty? It is found in the new and living way that he opens for us through the curtain, which is his flesh. It is in the, it is in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on a cross where he died for sinners just like you and me. Now notice the last phrase. This is, this is what caps it all off and makes it sure. He says in verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the resurrection. If Jesus had not arisen, if he had not rose from the dead, we would have no hope ever. Nobody would. He would have just been another man who had another following that died off and went away. But he was not another man. He was the Son of God from heaven who came and died and rose again, just as he said he would. The historical facts are accurate. Jesus died, he was buried, and he is alive again to life. He rose to life. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. (coughs) Excuse me. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes about this resurrection in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There are many who believe in vain. They believe because they think it's advantageous for their business, or they believe just to make a new friend, but that's not real belief. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive or were in Peter's day. Though some have fallen asleep or died physically. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles, all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul is not writing a fictional story here. He's writing, he's writing what he experienced. He saw the living Christ on the road at Damascus. And Lord, who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then he says, Lord, what will you have me do? I love that because it's just that instantaneous. His, his heart was opened and he, was, he became a believer. He had a new birth. Jesus lives and he lives. And we live because he lives. Paul writes... I've been crucified with Christ, but it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The writer of Hebrews says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. 
Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, Because I live, you will live also. I can proclaim to you this morning with absolute certainty and absolute assurance that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, that He resides by the throne of God in heaven, and He provides eternal life for anyone and everyone who will, who will admit their sin before God And trust in Christ to forgive them. And repent of those sins. You see, you can't just say, Oh yeah, I believe in Christ and then go on and live every way you want to. That's not salvation. That's what some of you may be doing. No. When Christ saves an individual, He changes their heart from the inside out. And everything becomes new. Your life becomes new. Your friends become new. Your love for God becomes new. I I say to you this morning to trust in Christ. Trust in Him before it is too late. There is an urgency in your soul to have your sins removed and forgiven. So that you can stand before God and not hear those terrible words, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Jesus lives today to save sinners. I pray that you will be one. So most, some of you, most of you probably already are. I don't know your hearts. But I do know this, the word of God is true. There is coming a judgment day. And you need to be ready for it. And without Christ, you are not ready for what's going to happen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this Easter day for the Lord Jesus, for the fact that he came to earth to save sinners, whom all of us are chief, and that he died on that cross and rose again the third day. And He is forevermore alive, saving sinners from their sin through the work of the Spirit. I pray, Father, that You would do that this morning. Loved ones, sons, daughters, family members, friends, acquaintances that we see, they are lost and need to be saved. And I pray, Father, that You would save them today. Give them no rest in their minds and in their hearts until they come face to face with their sin before the living God. For it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But it is a blessed thing to know that our sins are forgiven, that God is our Father, and that His face of blessing shines on us through Christ His Son. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.